You're listening to Wealth Tech on Deck, a podcast about the future of wealth management technology, brought to you by Life Yield. Here's your host, Jack Sherry. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Wealth Tech on Deck. I'm especially excited about today's episode. Usually we talk with industry executives about their strategy regarding the future of wealth management, and we pay particular attention to the what I call the confluence of human and digital advice. This week is a little different. I'm very pleased to have Nicole Kasperson, who is the fintech reporter for Investment News. She's joining us on our show. Nicole does a great job covering technology for Investment News, and recently she was uh, has been working on a cover story for IN and uh, around the future of financial advice with a specific focus around this crazy new concept called the Unified Manager uh, Household, which has been around actually for decades. So today we are going to uh, talk about her findings and what she has learned as she has reported on this significant and emerging trend. So Nicole, great to have you on Wealth Tech on Deck. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Jack. I'm so happy to be here and join you on this UMH journey, which yeah, yeah, yeah well. definitely nothing new, but what is new is why we got here and how we got here. And so that's what I've discovered, really. Tell us everything. What'd you learn? Maybe at a high level, what were some of the, maybe start with what do you think it was? And then what'd you find out it was? Maybe start there. Yeah, I think I had an understanding of what it could be. And I think reporting on it helped me understand really a lot of the elements that create a unified managed household, right? So on the surface, it seems like something as easy as just oh, well, if we have a bunch of integrations with, you know, external parties, everything will work in concert together. No problem, right? Wrong. The answer really includes a lot of integration as a service, providers needing to come into the fold, really requires data to be able to actually talk to each other. And there's so many different advisor pain points that come to light when, as I was reporting on the Unified Managed Household, which really is the purpose of the unified managed household is to have all of these applications, all of the points of a client or consumer's financial well-being, financial services, all of their accounts in one umbrella, under one umbrella, so that advisors or wealth managers can create their next best action and create the best outcomes. Mm -hmm. And it creates a personalized experience. It creates more time efficiency, cost efficiency, and allows us to leverage all this technology that we have access to. So that's kind of what maybe I thought it was something. So it sounds simple, right? Oh, just connect everything, duh. But it's quite complex. And dealing with the complexities of you know, a legacy system of M&A activity from these wealth tech providers is no small feat. And so that's kind of what mm-hmm. I had to unfold mm-hmm. during this. So I'm going to see if I can capture what you just defined as the UMH, maybe as a starting point for our listeners who may not be familiar with the concept. But essentially, it's looking at all the different elements of managing a household portfolio where the ultimate aim is to improve outcome and determine the next best thing to do. Is that maybe a good starting point to define UMH? Or maybe you can enhance what I just said. Yeah, I think that's a great definition. And one of the maybe famous quotes or sayings that came to my mind as I was defining the UMH is that saying that failing to plan means planning to fail. Mm -hmm. And when Mm -hmm. it comes to technology and having financial plans that are suitable for clients, advisors really need to have a clear vision of what they want their technology to achieve while having each piece work in concert 
together and with each other. And so I think, you know, understanding the UMH as comprehensively managing portfolios to improve investor advisor and firm financial results is really a great definition. But thinking of it along the lines of we're simply just connecting all of the technology dots and data so Mm -hmm. that we can give the best like win, win, win situation to all parties involved and save time and save money and have efficiencies. And if we can understand like external account integration, which is what, you know, a UMH requires to function, then that can be possible. And the technology is mature enough and adoption of technology is at a level where this is a possibility. And there's a bunch of other, you know, environmental trends happening that I've learned from Len Reinhardt, the pioneer of the UMH, who helped me understand why we are where we are today. Well, when I talk, before we get into that, I want to explore that further, but maybe talk about the different kind of folks you talk to and the sort of different perspectives that, uh, as you're putting the story together and trying to understand it, because the big challenge, you've mentioned a few different ways that this stuff's complicated. It's also comprehensive, so hence it's complicated. But talk a little bit about some of the, the kind of folks that you talk to that are in and around the whole UMH concept, then being a clear pioneer and someone that uh, was among the first to really champion that idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, Len Reinhardt obviously is someone who has been seeing the writing on the wall for like 20 plus years. And so he helped with kind of the background there. But Interestingly, I think today we're seeing a lot of the newer wealth techs, maybe the Investnets, the Orions, the Invest Clouds, getting a little bit more press when it comes to this because there's a lot of M&A activity and they really are able to create their UMH or tech ecosystem, really. That's like the new word for UMH. It's like tech ecosystem. Uh-huh. And you'll hear it called that sometimes. And the reason why, and I learned this actually speaking with Jason Moore from Orion, he said that the reason that these newer fintechs or wealth techs are buying and merging and having these acquisitions instead of building things in houses because it helps them get to market faster yes, and it helps yeah. them bring these tools right right away. And it's mm-hmm. the complete opposite approach than the incumbents, than the Morgan Stanleys, than the Wells Fargo, who I spoke with their heads of financial planning. And for the wirehouses or an incumbent or a large legacy bank, it's completely the opposite. Instead, it's they have to completely reorganize and rebuild their house nearly from scratch, right? Because legacy systems weren't built to work in tandem with a bunch of outside external accounts and that was not the point before, right? The point was to be very exclusive and not share technologies across a legacy system. But so what Morgan Stanley did is they completely built a new house. And that's what I learned from Rose Palazzo and Eric Lordy from Morgan Stanley. So that was really interesting, right? The two different approaches. And from Wells Fargo with Michael Lersch, he helped me understand that for them, it really started even with like organizational structures Mm -hmm. and having, I like how he used the term finding your North Star, right? So like the, their wealth management side really had to sit down, reorganize and say, hey, how are we going to find, you know, our North Star to implement the UMH? So we need staff involved. We need clients on board. We need communications 
completely transparent between everyone. So Mm -hmm. those are the differences with how these are built. Yeah. And I know Michael well and actually knew him when he was at Merrill and JP Morgan, where he made similar attempts. He seems to me that he's in a better spot at Wells in terms of that willingness to kind of shake it up and start all over again. But uh, not only is there the technological connection, coordination and all that, there's also a big shift in culture, in the ways of thinking that not only in the home office, but in the field. So Mm -hmm. did Michael talk about that at all? He and I have talked about this in the past. I I would assume he spoke about that with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's the new value proposition for wealth management and financial advice, which is you're no longer the stock picker. You're no longer a client isn't coming to your office and saying, hi, here are my assets, like enjoy managing them while I just sit blind. No, people want to be so involved with their financial decisions and they want them to reflect who they are as a person so much more today because of largely because of the pandemic and how all of our values have just changed and evolved. And so that's why this is even more important today. I mean, on top of just mindsets changing to where clients want more engagement and involvement with their wealth managers, with their investments and assets and portfolios to really reflect who they are as a person and their values. There are other industry trends or things just happening in the environment, a generational wealth transfer, right? With more millennials and Gen Zers in the fold than ever before. There's an investor appetite for that customized experiences through things like ESG investing and maturing financial planning software is how we get there. So like going back to Wells Fargo, right? They've partnered up with eMoney to be able to provide that to their, I believe it's like 13,000 or so advisors. So that's really where all of this has come together. Like this perfect storm of clients' minds have changed. The advisor value proposition is different. Technology is mature enough. That's something I learned from Rose and Eric is just like technology is finally at a place where we can talk about this and, and adoption is there. So that's what has led us to to this point. That's great. Actually, I spent a little time with uh, Rose Plaza uh, just yesterday oh. <laughs> and uh, she's been at this probably longer than anyone in terms of the building. Len has been talking about it longer, certainly uh, among the people you've mentioned, but uh, Rose has actually been rolling up her sleeves. In fact, we were recounting how she was able to convince a very senior executive at Morgan Stanley to make a bet on the concept of UMH when it was it was barely formed other than just the concept of, yeah, manage the household and prove mm-hmm. outcome. Okay, everybody's for that. But uh, talk a little bit, if you would, about some of the issues around just the complexity of it all. That seems to be the biggest issue. Certainly, technology has advanced. Data is available for sure. People are more inclined. But you still got to tick and tie and put it all together and make it work and produce a better outcome. So did you find much about that, just how darn complex this thing is? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the technology complexities really are involved around these wealth tech providers taking a step back and really leveraging things like, you know, APIs and, you know, even platforms like what Judd Mackerel left his role, Carson Group, to start integration as a service mile marker. I mean, that really addresses the data gap, which is how, okay, so now we have multiple solutions, if you will, or you know, product offerings for multiple tech providers, but how do you actually make all of that data talk to each other and make it as efficient as possible. You know, it's think of Amazon, right? It's the e-commerce giant drives value through its use of data to prompt its customers with suggestions and perspectives on what they could be doing next. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Literally, financial advisors can do the exact same thing and they will be held to that standard in due time. So there are solutions out there, but the complexity is like, how do you actually bring in these into the fold? So kind of what I said before with the legacy system, so like a Morgan Stanley or Wells Fargo, they had to completely, you know, rebuild the house. But what the maybe more of the Orions or the investments or the newer wealth tech providers, what they run into when it comes to actually like the integration, right? Okay, so they do this M&A activity and now they have to do things like really reinforce cybersecurity because obviously com- and mm-hmm. communications with clients, right? Because obviously there can be some inherent concerns about, okay, well, in the past, the idea was I put all of my money and assets, especially a super wealthy client in multiple avenues to ensure safety. And now we're telling them the opposite. Like, no, it's actually safer for you to bring everything under one umbrella or at least have everything connected in one umbrella for your wealth manager and advisor to advise you properly. So one thing that Orion's Jason Moore also told me was to just really, really reinforce that cybersecurity. You really have to have these like open discussions with not just clients, but the other tech providers that you're having integrations with or acquiring or whatever it is. It's that is huge. So just being like, hey, we spend millions of dollars on cybersecurity. We're ensuring that, you know, your very personal data is being as protected as possible. And then also making sure that they understand why a UMH or why a connected account integrations are so valuable to them. And if you're able to communicate that, then that should kind of help with some of those complexities Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. it's like what uh, our friend, your friend, you might know him, Steve Zushin, you know, from uh, Life Yield. He he had said that, you know, today advisors are held to a much higher standard and they need to automate all of the coordination of these accounts to give suitable advice because this will become table stakes within the next five years. So those are some of the hard parts and also some of the solutions, I guess, in a sense that I learned from my folks that I talked to for the story. That's great. I'm going to ask you some more about the user experience because so far we've talked largely about the what goes on underneath the hood and the complexity there. And we'll talk a moment about how to put that in front of uh, advisors and clients so they can make good choices. But I'm, again, for our audience, I'm just going to do a quick summary of what we've covered so far because there's a lot going on in a UMH and it's not always readily apparent, but I'll see if I can break it down into some building blocks. So it starts with looking at all the accounts, products, holdings in a household and making sure that the data, often these are held in different custodians, they're held in, in different ways, uh, using different data sources and what have you. But ultimately, what needs to happen is that the data needs to be synthesized, rationalized, so you can feed it into a plan. You do a plan which suggests what matters in terms and that leads to an asset allocation and looking at the risk picture. Also, that consideration of taxes starts to come into play as you're putting together the plan. Then there's a proposal. What do you do about it? Namely, what products and capabilities? That includes, by the way, Using existing products, you don't sell everything to start over. That's would be too onerous and too costly. If I dare say, that's what Schwab Intelligent Portfolios and their income capability require. You literally have to sell everything to buy their ETFs. The modern-day UMHs, you can use any, any of your existing products along with any new and appropriate products. But as you put all those together, want to make sure your risk and taxes is, is lined up. That comes through a form of a proposal. 
That then goes into uh, ongoing management at a portfolio level of all the different accounts, products, and holdings. Rebalancing over time as appropriate as markets or circumstances change. That usually ends up down the road as an income generation. You need to have income generation capability again across multiple accounts. Again, rather complex to do. So I, I share that with our audience just to understand those are the elements that Nicole is talking about here. And what she was referring to is often many of these folks who are working on different parts Parts of the UMH, they need to work together. And it's, I'm sure you found that in talking with the, your sources and mm-hmm. the, the folks that contributed to the article. It's really important that all the different software providers are in sync and work together. And then all of that typically takes place on a platform, whether it's called Orion or it's called InvestNet or Morgan Stanley or Wells or what have you. So pardon that commercial break to just sort of, for our audience that's trying to get their head around UMH, I think I captured it, didn't I, Nicole? Is that about? Yeah, that was a great way. And that's the thing, I guess, is I love that you listed all of the aspects, right? Because that does add to the complexity of what is happening here, right? Think about all the things you listed. That's not even all of it, right? It's everything you can think of that involves a client's account, that involves everything. And tax management is also a huge thing to highlight, because, you know, obviously we're seeing the path that Congress is, you know, going with uh, increasing capital gains rates and tax rates and all these types of things. There's so much going on. And just even the regulatory environment, that, that is also such an important part of, you know, achieving that level of a UMH. So, yeah, there's solutions out there. If I could add to that, not only taxes just because of the current environment that we're in, but we are, another trend, clear trend, is more people are retiring today than ever before. Mm-hmm. And more people are retiring earlier than ever before. And more people are on their own in, in managing all of the assets in their household portfolio. Since so many are retiring early, that means they're missing out on peak earning years and also means they're they're going to be living longer in retirement. So all those are just adding to the complexity of, of making sure that they can maintain a sustainable income through retirement, which is a whole other aspect of, of the UMH. So now I share all that because... I want to get to the sort of the user experience side of of all that mm-hmm. is uh, so that's all the complexity. And my experience, having spent a lot of time in this space for over many years, that an advisor has a hard time explaining all that to a client. In fact, we have a hard time and we actually know what we're talking about, right? I know. So um, what I found, I'm sure you found, is that you really have to kind of quantify the benefit of what you're doing. When you talk about next best action, if you're going to suggest the next best action, that presumes you've quantified the benefit of all potential actions so you can set up the next best action. So I'm curious, that gets to user experience. So talk a little bit about what you learned and what you heard around user experience, around next best action, because that has its own level of complexity, largely about around how do you make it so simple anyone can understand it. Right. And I would probably go back to an Amazon-like Example, that's really the, to me, the best way to explain it to someone is you give or any of the major, maybe like shopping or think about anything that you use on your phone, right? So like even banking on your phone, right? So you have one app that has all of your data connected. You can do things like literally use your thumbprint or your face recognition to give it the okay to use data from another source to then funnel that in so that you don't have to do anything else, right? I mean, I know that's very different, but that's the idea. And Mm -hmm. even things like Amazon can use certain pieces of data to say, oh, I mean, have you ever seen like at the bottom of an Amazon cart, like comparing prices to show you if something is the best 
price, sure. you know, sure. and I, on all of that is so crazily catered to who you are. You know, they're not, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. all not out of a whim. Yep. That data is curated yep. for you and as a specific user and personalized for you. And yep. so if all of the style of pieces of a client's financial life can be connected in a similar way that, you know, an e-commerce site or a shopping site does what they do with their connected data and, and integration, then investors can benefit from you know, optimizing their holdings while advisors present their personalized advice to help clients reach their goals. So quantifying it, I will say that's something that I really could only find via research, right? So things like there's an Ernest and Young study that found the UMH method can increase spendable income by 33%, which adds up to more than 1 million of increased discretionary spending power over 30 years on a portfolio with a starting value of $1 million. So that's something. So that's really the best we can do at this point, right, is to find certain statistics or certain pieces of information that really bring to value the UMH as it's just like something that continues to be mainstreamed and built out. I would say some of the other interesting stats that I found from another Ernest & Young Global Wealth Research Report were things like over half or 53% of wealth management clients being willing to pay more for personalized services. And in exchange for greater personalization, the majority of wealth management clients, and that was 71%, are willing to share more personal data with their wealth manager. And a higher portion of those are willing to share more information with their wealth manager than they would a doctor or a retailer or a tech firm or like a media platform, which I thought was so interesting. Like you'd rather mm-hmm, give more mm-hmm. personalized data information to get that next best outcome to your yeah. financial advisor, your wealth manager, more than like a doctor. I guess I don't blame them. Doctors can be kind of scary, but like <laughs> it's kind of just crazy, right? How into this people are. And so research, research and the great research firms out there, keep that up to help us quantify this thing. Yeah. And I will say as a firm that does quantify benefit and and we work with other firms that we know do the same, like BlackRock's Aladdin and Orion's recent purchase of hidden levers, what we do at Lifefield with our tax optimization, we're all quantifying benefit and we're all contributing to those ecosystems that you're, that you, uh, as you spoke to the executives in charge of those. So it's early stage still, but it's coming where that quantification of benefit is getting built into the algorithms, getting built into the methodology and not fully connected. All the dots aren't connected. The UMH is more of a journey at this point than a destination. We'll get to that destination, but the full on UMH is, is on its way and coming. And I'm curious what's your take on where it is today and where do you see it going around UMH? It's clearly, in my view, still early stage, a lot of people working on it, Mm -hmm. a lot of people trying to figure it out. So where do you see it today and where do you see it going? Mm -hmm. I think it needs to evolve beyond just, oh, here's a platform that or a service that we provide from the incumbents or even the wealth, the newer wealth techs. And I think what will happen, and I think Steve hit the nail on the head with, you know, within five years, it'll become mainstream. It'll become table stakes that... Mm -hmm technology is connected, that data is connected, that accounts are integrated, that more wealth tech providers are using external account integration, which just literally means that all of the APIs are connected so that they can talk to each other and then work together to create different outcomes. Yep. So that's where I see it heading. I think mm-hmm. the one of the maybe unspoken heroes of this is that are those cybersecurity efforts are the are everything you need to protect clients and and communication with 
advisors, wealth tech providers, consumers, just to get everyone comfortable. It's kind of like any new innovation or anything new that happens in any industry. You really just have to keep reinforcing the positivity, keep reinforcing what it brings to the table, the value it brings to everyone. Because I think one of the things that's so important and why wealth tech is so exciting or fintech in general is the access, is the personalization, is the idea and not just idea, but something we're literally doing today of everyone can win. Like it doesn't just need to be the advisor. doesn't have to just worry about, oh, I need my bottom line. Like I need a high AUM so that I can charge my fee and get what I need to keep my firm running. It doesn't have to just be the wealth tech provider saying, hey, I need to charge, you know, a high subscription or whatever it is. I only need enterprise deals or whatever it is to like keep them afloat. And then the consumer is like, well, what about me? Like it can Everyone can win. And we literally have the technology for the first time. Technology is mature enough to say, hey, if we all just work together, if we all just you know, bring everything in concert and work like a nice like orchestra to create beautiful music, then everyone can win. Then the advisor can free up their time and give that personalized advice and have a full picture of their client's financial wellness and what makes sense, you know, how much money they can do for that next vacation, how much it costs to do that wedding or how much they need for retirement to retire when they want and live the life they want. Happiness, life happiness is like something we all decided sure. is something we all want. And, yeah. and yeah. I think the pandemic showed us that we can't keep working, even he, as humans, we can't keep working in the silos that we had. And that, that applies to our industry because that clearly wasn't working before. Look at how many things were disproportionately impacted in positive and negative ways because of the pandemic. And so that is also what's changing wealth tech and fueling the UMH platform today is all of those things. And so that's the idea. Like, let's see financial services win and kind of get rid of the bad rap that they've had and say, hey, no, we want to use technology for good. We want to bring all of the pieces together and we want to make the advisor, the tech provider, the legacy firm, the bank, the whatever. We want to make everyone richer. Let's make everyone richer because why not? We can do it. We have the tools. I'm describing this whole thing and I love your enthusiasm. The, uh, this whole thing as this is all about more money. (laughs) It's more money for the uh, investor, the advisor and the firm. It's just about more money. It is that win, win, win. So before we uh, start to wind down, uh, keeping our uh, 30-minute objective here in mind, how do you wind up becoming a fintech reporter? I'm just curious. How do you get into this game? It sounds like you're pretty excited about it. I'm very excited about fintech. Probably the most exciting time to be here. I originally started out covering the housing and mortgage industry after grad school in the Dallas area for just a couple of small publications trade pubs out there. And so I kind of got my foot in the door right away in the trade publication world and a hardcore intro to financial services. If you were to see my my grades in my economic and finance classes, they forced you to take, despite the fact I was a journalism major, they weren't great. So I got my education by reporting on the industry and eventually moved on to cover the auto finance market, which if you don't know, have an education in finance, that'll definitely give it to you. If the housing market won't, auto finance (laughs) will. So I was covering the biggest names in the finance and auto finance. And that was also a great opportunity. And then I now in my third role, covering the financial services space with investment news, covering fintech and uh, now the new term wealth tech these days is how I kind of ended up here. And but yeah, it's just, it's really an exciting time because of all the things we've talked about, right? Yeah, and it's the yeah. first time in my career 
where folks my age, I'm a millennial nearly on the cusp of Gen Z, and I've never in my life had my peers speak to me about finance, to speak to me. I'm like at a bar hanging out with my friends and they ask me questions. They want to know what's up. At a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, five years ago when I first started, yeah, it, I, my job used to be a snooze fest. <laughs> and so, right, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, this is great. I really enjoyed it, Nicole, and this has been a lot of fun. And we really appreciate your uh, sharing about the story. This uh, podcast will appear hopefully shortly after it appears in print. I have yet to see it. I look forward to reading it. So thanks for all that. One of the things we do on our podcast each week is we ask our guests uh, if they would share something interesting or unique or exciting that they do outside of work. And so uh, what do you do that you particularly enjoy or are passionate about uh, that uh, some of your work peers might find interesting? Sure. Yeah. So I possibly have one of the widest ranges of musical genre and appreciation you could ever meet. Uh, I grew up with a father who introduced me to music very young and we'd have listening sessions in our house or sing-alongs in our car and every moment music was on and music represented a strong aspect of bringing in kind of strong female representation into my life at a young age and not just women, but also people that are just rocking who they authentically are. So I can go from singing along with like Gen Z artists like Olivia Rodrigo, Miley Cyrus or K-pop stars like BTS. Shout out to anyone in the audience that actually knows who those people are. And (laughs) I know most of them. (laughs) Okay, there we go. And then, but I can also go from knowing every single word to Elton John's, any, like just any of those songs, David Bowie, Janis Joplin, Joan Jett, Patti Smith, Stevie Nicks, Debbie Harry, Tina Turner, Aretha Franklin. So I'm actually like a really old soul when it comes to my music taste, but I can also relate to my Gen Z millennial peers. And then, you know, I could also probably sing most of the Hamilton musicals, so I could throw in a little little (laughs) theater chops there as well. So I have like a weird (laughs) ability to know lyrics to things right away. Maybe it's because I'm a writer, I'm a journalist, but it's an interesting kind of bit about myself. That's great. That's great. Well, that's why this is my favorite question on these <laughs> podcasts. Is I always learn something like new and surprising. So thank you for sharing that. So as I turn to our audience to uh, bid you adieu, I uh, hope you've enjoyed our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, and or share what we're doing here at Wealth Tech on Deck. We are available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again, Nicole. This was a lot of fun, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wealth Tech on Deck, our ongoing conversation about improving financial outcomes for all. This podcast is brought to you by LifeYield and produced by Reverb. Subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can connect with our host, Jack Sherry, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And for more information about our perspective on the future of financial advice, visit our website at lifeyield.com.